Calling all Caribbean authors. Calling all Caribbean authors. Here is your opportunity to convert your hard copy books into audio. Blue Flames Audio. Yes, man. You can email them at bpaudiobooks at gmail.com. Blue Flames Audio. Taking over the islands of St. Martin, Anguilla, Sebastia, and beyond, this is Entertainment Trail Spotlight on SOS Radio 95.9 on your FM Entertainment Trail, the home where culture comes alive. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to another episode of Entertainment Show Spotlight right here on SOS Radio 95.9 on your FM dial. People, I tell you, last week was a wonderful program. I hope someone was liberated last week. Someone, hope the show last week helped someone in some way, shape, or form. This week, I'm continue, continuing on that same trend. Uh, we have two documentary to play for you guys this week. Uh, one will be on the first Maroon War that's in Jamaica, and the second one will be on Miss Aretha Franklin who passed on on Thursday. I think it was Thursday morning. Yes, uh, she was 76, and she uh, said that she died from pancreatic um, cancer. People, you know that she's known as the soul, the Queen of Soul. Detroit, I understand people. So, hope you stick and stay with us for this week. And people, yesterday, the 17th of August, was Jamaica first um, national hero, Marcos Masaya Garvey, birthday. And I think tomorrow, IRFM will be doing the yearly tribute to him. Concert at the undergrounds of IRFM, number one reggae radio. I understand in, in, in King in Ocherius, that it's located in Ocherius, Jamaica. Yeah, man. So, this show, you hope you guys enjoy enjoy this program, learn a lot, you know. So, the Maroon War, people, the Maroon War. I tell you, this, 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 this are some of the stuff that help uh, Marcus Garvey and those other heroes, in, in, especially in Jamaica, to be the person they are, to fight for what they fought, what they fought for over the years. You understand, people? So, it, this war took place in 1730, I think it's 38 or 39. Um, well, the first settlement of, of, of Maroons in Jamaica, the Motown Maroons, we call the first set of free persons um, in the Caribbean, actually, you know, because they, 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 they fought against the British and they, they, they got their, their freedom. To, it's like a city state within a state, you understand? So they have their own government. And that was um, in on the, the, the normal. I think they were normally call them the Blue Mountain Maroons, but I think um, later on they call them Motown Maroons. So you're gonna hear you're gonna hear, hear some information about them, and I hope this um, information will be helpful to you guys this week. So, yep, we're hearing regular music today. Coming up next is Black. Well, you're listening to it in the background actually. And um, Black My Story. 
You understand? Big tune. Yeah, man. Soon forward. African glory. African Yes, people, you're listening to Black My Story by Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers, people. Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. You know, Ziggy Marley and his siblings. Yeah, people, I tell you, tell you what. Without further ado, I'll take you into the documentary Motown Maroons of Jamaica, people. This is also called the first Maroon War with Nanny. Nanny of the Maroons, Queen Nanny. She's also a national hero in Jamaica. Coromanti, the Ashanti warrior. Alright, people, so let's go. Soon this is Amla Red Square, and you're now in tune to the entertainment trail. Or Jamaica, as it was known to the Arawak Indians. They were the first Aboriginal inhabitants on their Isle of Springs, and by all accounts lived at peace among themselves until the arrival of the Spanish fleet in 1494. The Spanish came in search of gold. They found no treasures, but instead a cheap source of labor, and the Arawaks were quickly driven into submission to work the fields and mines. The Indians fell to forced labor and were virtually exterminated. If Spain wished to hold Jamaica, she needed new slaves. Her eyes turned across the Atlantic Ocean and settled on West Africa. The first slave ships, packed with their black cargo, anchored in Jamaica in 1517, and in the following years, hundreds more sailed off from the Gold Coast, with Africans bound together in darkness and disease. Those who survived their voyage held up to their new captivity and quickly supplanted the few remaining Arawaks. However, not every ship returned to Jamaica, nor could every plantation control its enslaved. Some Africans chose open rebellion, Organized insurrections increased with time, only to be crushed again and again by the Europeans. In 1655, Jamaica was invaded by the British fleet. In the midst of the confusion, large numbers of Spanish slaves took their chances and fled into the dense interior, where they banded together for protection. Within a few years, Spain formally relinquished control of the island, and Jamaica began a new and dark chapter under English rule. Lost to the isolation of the thick and hilly Midlands, the fugitive slaves cared little. They were free men, and now concentrated on building their numbers. While below, the British colonists streamlined the patterns of slave trade already firmly entrenched. Towards the early 18th century, Jamaica began to prosper as a major sugar colony. The English king was delighted and to encourage an even healthier plantation economy, thousands of new slaves were acquired, and new settlements flourished. The island now supported a large black population, bound under a determined white minority. Through ignorance and greed, Jamaica and slavery became one, with the slave trade ruling the fates of all parties involved. Word spread of those slaves who had escaped during the British invasion and who now roamed the interior. 
They became known as Maroons, from the Spanish Cimarron, or Unruly Ones, and their bold organized raids and white settlements shocked the English and inspired other slaves to escape and join those already free in the mountains. Many early Maroons were born in Africa. They represented many differing tribes with their own cultural backgrounds and languages. There were the Ashantis and Fantis, the Aways and Gaws, the Igbos and Yorubas, and countless others between. From these individuals, a common society took root and arose in the forest to become the Maroons. The British colonial government, recognizing its growing vulnerability, organized a series of military campaigns against the Maroons, yet these almost always met with defeat. Even though the English forces greatly outnumbered the Maroons and were far better equipped, it seemed these Maroon soldiers, led by their disciplined officers, were all but invincible. The Maroons fought a guerrilla war, camouflaged in leaves and lying in ambush. And they used the abang, a horn, whose sound carried over long distances to forewarn others of the approach of enemy forces. The fighting grew, often desperate for both sides. But the Maroons simply could not be defeated. And so, in 1739, the English sued for peace. The two major groups of Maroons, one to the west in the cockpit country, and one in the eastern Blue Mountains signed formal treaties, entitling the Maroons to full freedom and self-rule, large land grants, exemption from taxation, and peace. Today, the descendants of these people live a peaceful life in the hills of Jamaica. The Maroons haven't forgotten their heroic past. They recite tales of Grandy Nanny. Grandy Nanny, the ancient freedom fighter, the great Maroon heroine who used her awesome supernatural powers to keep the English at bay. They recall the glories of past battles, but above all, they cling to the freedom for which their ancestors fought so bitterly. Today, Jamaica is an independent nation, a dynamic, changing third world country. The Maroons are full Jamaican citizens, but still they remain a people apart, islands within an island. They understand the Jamaican wilderness as no one else can. The mountains, the woodlands, the caves, and the rains, always the rains. Moortown. This is the largest of four maroon towns in Jamaica, and its population is thought to number well above a thousand residents. It was here that a large number of the Eastern Maroons settled shortly before their historic treaty with the British in 1740. The impression of isolation is deceptive. For generations, the Maroons of Moortown have been in close contact with people from the outside. Today, Moortown is physically indistinguishable from most other rural Jamaican villages. Its neat little zinc-roofed houses, its churches, shops, and rum bars tell little of the ancient Maroon legacy. At first glimpse, there is nothing in Moortown to summon up images of a turbulent past. But beneath the surface, the past lives on. Moortown, man. It's the capital. Yeah, man. Moortown is the capital of Earth, you know. There's no place on Earth like the capital. What you say? It's the Maroon roots. No truth. Moortown, Earth Capital, strictly. In Moortown, there is a strong sense of continuity with the Maroon past. For all the changes that have come to Moortown in the last century, there remain many elements connecting today's lifestyle to that of earlier years. 
Although they are Jamaican citizens, the Moortown Maroons are still governed in the tradition of the treaty by an elected council and chief officer called the Colonel, Colonel C.L.G. Harris. My duty as Colonel simply stated is to work for the betterment, the all-round betterment of our community. But as you may well surmise, there are several facets of this rather large sphere of responsibility. Some of these, a few of them are, I must preside at all meetings, committee meetings and township meetings. I must make representations to the government on behalf of my people. I must settle disputes particularly those involving more than one claimant to a, any special parcel of land. And uh, I'm expected to see about all cases of non-maroons who come to more town searching for knowledge as far as our history is concerned. As in the past, land in and around Moortown is communally held by the maroons as a group although it is divided up into small farms cultivated and maintained by individuals. The Maroons are still not required to pay taxes on these lands. The farmers of Moortown continue to follow the time-tested traditions of their ancestors. Using the clearing technique known as slash and burn, they grow a few basic subsistence crops, mostly tubers such as yams, dasheen, and cocoa. Farming along the steep slopes is formidable. With cutlass, hoe, and fork, the soil must be worked and the seed sown. So the grandparents planted, and so their grandparents before them. The Maroons have succeeded well as woodsmen. After their treaty, it was only natural that they sell their skills to those outside. For years, Maroons have supplied hand-sawed lumber to other Jamaicans, as they still do today. Forests abound in hard lumber, but the work is demanding and slow, and the pay is low. The Maroons have learned from their ancestors how to use the forest to their advantage. Wild plants such as thatchhead provide a steady source of food in the farthest reaches of the forests. Some of these edible plants are known only to maroons today. It was such knowledge that saved the early maroons in times of emergency when crops could not be relied on.
Even the marooned children have learned to gather from the wilds. The marooned country also abounds in rivers and streams. Today, as in the past, these provide people with a supplementary source of food which can be depended on when times are hard. One of the few remaining maroon hunters, Leonard White, explains how the maroons today use the traditional lance, called junga, or a sunodaja, to bring down their prey, the wild hog. The early maroons were famous for their skill in hunting the boars which ranged the deeper mountains of Jamaica. To help preserve the meat of the wild hog, the Maroons created a special method of preparation called jerking. The meat is seasoned with a mixture of salt and hot pepper and then put aside to cure for several hours. It is later roasted over an open fire. The jerking method has been adopted by other Jamaicans and today jerk pork has become a favorite delicacy on the island. The wild hog is a very dangerous thing. So we need this as our defense. The old-time Maroons used to use it this way. Like a gun, to defend themselves. During the days of Grandi Nanny, we had to use it in this way and also to kill the wild hog. We used it all different kinds of ways during the old time days. We call it the Asunu Daja. Raja, the official abang blower from Moortown, prepares his abang for signaling. This instrument, which originated in West Africa, was used as a strategic device to keep the Maroons forewarned of the approach of enemies. Even today, the tonal language of the Abang can be used to signal emergency, but more often it is used to call the Maroons to assembly. The language of the Abang is a Maroon secret. The signals for war, carried down from previous generations, have not been forgotten. This is what the Maroons call the ancient art of camouflage. Such ingenuity that contributed to the military successes of the early Maroons. They were, after all, the first black guerrilla fighters in the New World. Today, their memory lives on in this practice, reenacted during special ceremonies, such as this one, presided over by the Colonel and Assistant Secretary of Mortan.
Besides gaining a reputation as fierce fighters, the Maroons also became well-known throughout the country as healers, owing to their exceptional knowledge of the bush. Uncle George, a Maroon herbal healer, displays one of his remedies. This medicine is Grandy Nanny's medicine, the medicine of our tribe. That from Grandy Nanny to Grandy Sekesu. Grandy Nanny and Grandy Sekesu and all of our ancestors, we form a tribe. And that is why we have learned how to fix up this medicine. This medicine, you take it and shake it up. And do it so. And chew it in your glass. And drink one wine glass three times a day. Going to bed at night, you drink one wine glass. That's this one. This medicine goes to lots of people. This medicine has gone out to lots of people, more than a thousand. It is good for the stomach. This now is one of our weeds. We take this and juice it and use it to bathe people. We use it to treat pain and various kinds of sickness and complaints. This is our weed. It is called Grandy Nanny Weed. In some cases, sickness may require more than herbal treatment. This young man is complaining of stomach pains. When it is divined that a sickness such as this has been caused by the influence of supernatural powers, then the spirits of ancestors must be invoked to fight against the evil afflicting the victim. The ritual specialist, known as the Dancer Man, must undergo years of training to acquire the knowledge necessary to effect a cure. Sacrifice may be offered. As in many African societies, this is a sign of reverence for the ancestors. The close tie between Maroon healers and the spirits of their ancestors is an important part of traditional Maroon culture. It creates a bridge between the present and the past and lends a sense of continuity to Maroon society over the generations. Hopwood, the assistant secretary of the Moortown Maroons, is an accomplished Cromanti drummer. In times of crisis, the Cromanti drum may be used to invoke Maroon spirits to come and possess the living. In this form, the spirits offer their aid. This is a maroon drum. It's made by me. It's called the Coromanti drum. It, it was it is handed down from our ancestors. It was used during the days when Nani was fighting against the English. They, they are very sacred to the maroons. 
use them to send messages. They are used to um, send messages to the spirit world. In other words, when we are playing for sick, nobody, no strangers, nobody except Maroons can attend that ceremony. It's very sacred. I started to play this drum from, I was about four or five years of age. I learned to play it by just watching the players when they are playing at nights or during the days. I mean, I feel pleasure all the while in playing it. Because it is, it is of great importance to me. celebration in October, the Maroons combine drumming and singing with dance. stages of spirit possession, but is quickly cleared of the spirit. Auntie Liz has been the midwife of Moortown for years. She has delivered the majority of the people living in Moortown today. My age is 96. I have looked after the babies of almost all the people of Moortown. I could have danced the I used to dance band. the maroon dance very well. Very much. And when I look after the baby then... And when I have looked after the babies, the government has not looked after me properly. I think over that very I think much. about this very much. God help me to get through. I fight the good fight with all I might. Younger Maroons are still surrounded by tradition. Some Maroon traditions are being passed down to them, such as the Gaita, a type of bamboo stilt used for sport during Easter. change is in the air. Today, George Sterling is the secretary of the Moortown Maroons and for many years has been an influential member of the Maroon Council. 
some people really believe that um, maroons are things of the past. But today, I can assure that I am a true-born maroon, and I am alive. Uh, it was miraculous to know how it happens, but it did happen in truth. Nanny scientifically works our way out, and the British has got to subdue by asking for a peace treaty to be signed betwixt the Maroons and the British government. And it was so done with the signing of both British blood and Maroon blood. It was also mixed with rum and was drunk by each parties as a hoot that there should be no war again with the Maroons and the British government. And because of that, I am happy to be a Maroon today as a freedom fighter. And it was, it was so happy that a few years after Maroon got their freedom, then the government find it possible to give freedom to the rest of um, slaves the first day of August in that year. So, today we are happy that Jamaica is a free country, beginning from the Maroons who fought strenuously for freedom for their race. Yes, people, that was Morton um, Maroons. Yes, people, otherwise, that, that period in, in, our, in our history is also called the first um, Maroon War. And as I said before, and as you heard in the documentary, um, that group was um, the first, if not the first group in the region and to, to gain some level of independence from their colonial rulers. Yeah, people, so hope you learn something there and also be proud of your history. You understand, people? Yeah, that's the history. You can nothing about that. You can change the present to make the future better. You understand people, so right now we're going for a break and we'll be right back. This is Master, so big up on yourself and after the break we're going to Queen of Soul. Calling all Caribbean authors. Calling all Caribbean authors. Here is your opportunity to convert your hard copy books into audio. Blue Flames Audio. Yes, man. You can email them at bpaudiobooks at gmail.com. 
Blueflames Audio. You are now in tune to the Entertainment Trail Spotlight. Welcome back, welcome back um, to the Entertainment Trail Spotlight. Yes, before the break, we, we, we delve into a little Caribbean history there, a little Jamaican history. But right now, we're going to the USA. Uh, they would say the big US, US of the USA. You understand, people? So, we're going to Detroit. To be exact, we're going to take some time to pay, I guess, our tribute to Queen of Soul, Lady Aretha Franklin. Right now, we're going to listen to this song you're hearing in the background. It's called Freeway. It's a freeway love. One of her big hit. People, I tell you why. We're going to miss her, we're going to miss her. She did some wonderful songs, both soul and both gospel people. Yeah, I tell the people she, she was wonderful. You understand, people? Did some wonderful songs. So. Right of the song, it was created into the documentary about her. So, yeah, hope you enjoy. is not unusual in American music. In jazz, Count Basie and Duke Ellington reigned supreme. In the blues, Bessie Smith was a legendary empress. But in soul, a unique Afro-American blend of gospel passion and pop lyrics, there's been only one queen. Her name, Aretha Franklin. I was crowned the Queen of Soul uh, with respect to maintaining my title as the Queen of Soul I it, well it's second nature to me and I think just being myself uh, the rest will take care of itself So, it's exactly soul. It's what it is. She's uh, the queen of soul. And uh, if if I can, I can't even describe it. All I can tell you is I can feel it. You know, it's just that deep. It's just right from there. Yeah. is one of the great natural instruments I've ever heard. 
and the way she uses it is just so instinctive and so beautiful. She knows exactly what she wants. She could go to the piano and play nearly like she plays it now. None of the rest of us could do that. You know, none of the rest of us could just go sit down and play the piano and uh, and sing like that. And... Aretha was raised in the church, and so was I. I mean. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, yeah, uh, I guess your music, I mean, what's in your body, I mean, what's in your soul or the way you came up is, is somehow or another will come out through your fingers or come out through your, your vocal cords or whatever. With your The church, certainly uh, gospel, are my roots, and um, it certainly served as a testing ground for me as a singer as well, as many other good things came from the church. Uh, and it's just a feeling that you get there that you don't get anywhere else. In the 1950s and 60s, Reverend Franklin was a mighty figure in black America. He was a powerful member of the National Baptist Church, a group whose seven million members made it the largest black organization outside of Africa. But Reverend Franklin was more than a religious leader. He was one of the first ministers to have his sermons released on records and to host his own nationally broadcast radio show, through which he reached millions. And you know, Whatever your mental attitude is, has a lot to do with what you're going to be and how successful you are in your efforts. Remember, in black society, the minister was bigger than the president. If I'm in New York and my sister died in Mississippi, okay, I have no place I can eat as I go down. I have no place I can sleep. So it was the Baptist minister here that would call Baptist ministers on the way down. And so that black Baptist church 
had a fantastic role in saving me from being dehumanized. Aretha, born March 25, 1942, was the third of four children. Her mother Louise left the family when Aretha was only six and died when she was 10. Left to raise the family by himself, Reverend Franklin emerged as a constant source of strength and inspiration in Aretha's life. He was a very liberal minister, which kept us in trouble because he knew all the performers in both realms, you know, pop, blues, gospel. And then during that time, during the 50s and all, that was unusual for a minister to have that kind of association outside of the church. Because of Reverend Franklin's fame, stars from all branches of American music gravitated to his home. Sam Cooke, Clara Ward, and Jackie Wilson were just a few of the musicians who filled the Franklin house with their presence and their music. Every time I think about uh, my early childhood, it would be waking up to the sound of uh, a stand-up bass or uh, someone's guitar or, or the piano, and that might be the Oscar Peterson trio, or that might be the Art Tatum group. We would drag her out of bed, and she'd go down there and <coughs> play for the stars. And they, you know, considered her a star once they heard her. I think that my dad felt that I was gifted or uniquely talented as a child, yes. Uh, he would coach me in different things. He would give me different records to listen to and to see if I could emulate them on the piano. Uh, different vocalists to listen to, such as Clara Ward and uh, Mahalia, other artists like that. services across the country. I would travel with my dad. I was about 14, 15. On the weekends I could go and he would give me $50 each time. I would sing uh, one or two songs and it was quite exciting. I not only saw and heard and performed with the gospel greats, but I also saw other artists uh, that were in the pop field that I liked and whose, whose records I bought as a child and as a teenager. People like Fats Domino and Bobby Bland and many other artists that would be staying in the same hotel that we would be staying in. And so I had the opportunity to meet them as well. Aretha, in most instances, uh, would sing just before her father, Reverend Franklin, naturally being a minister, was the headliner most times. 
and uh, then Aretha would do a solo just before uh, the Reverend would do his uh, sermon. I gained a lot of experience on the road with him. Then um, I decided I wanted to change fields, so I let him know. And uh, he felt that this was what I wanted to do, and this is what I should do. If you I think there was some some conflict in the church congregation right. mm -hmm. concerning her crossing over. They felt to some degree that uh, she was turning her back on either the church or on God by singing secular music. However, my father played uh, quite an instrumental role in in elevating the people's enlightenment. Aretha was a restless young woman who'd had two children by the time she was 17 and had gotten married in her early 20s. Just as Aretha was maturing into womanhood, she sought new challenges as an artist. Over the objections of some churchgoers, Reverend Franklin arranged for her to record demo tapes of pop and jazz material in hopes of landing a recording contract. We both liked Columbia. Columbia was a major and uh, well-known label at the time. And so we went to New York. I began to live in the Big Apple. My first encounter with Aretha was listening on, on demo, uh, to a demo record. But I heard this voice and I said, my God, that's the greatest voice I've heard since Billy Holiday. signed it to Columbia, even though uh, Sam Cooke was trying desperately to get it for RCA. And I, I made, I think, some very good records with Aretha at Columbia. And uh, we, I wanted to keep us to a degree as a jazz singer. Uh, and, and, but Columbia wanted to make a big pop star out of her, which I thought would ruin her integrity. When you went and left me there crying 
it didn't bother you I was crying And now you want to break my heart twice Is that why you got in touch with me? While everybody around her met well, I think that those, those who probably met more than well are the ones who were the distractors. I, I, I think that um, I used to argue with her husband, Ted White. Not in front of her, but behind her back, I would argue with him. Why can't you let her do what she wants to do? And uh, the moment she was able to do it, uh, the rest, I mean, you know, she be really became an international star at that, at that point in time. Aretha had terrible luck with men. That was, that was one of the awful parts of it. And there'd be one, quote, husband after another handling her affairs, you know, and uh, it was a mess. And uh, also, uh, they weren't picking the right material for her. Columbia was basically a white company. You're no good, heartbreaker. You're a liar and you're a cheat. one night and then it was why like the night on bald mountain while Purgus knocked everything went crazy everything went flying to pieces fights and screaming and then back to the motel and footsteps up and down the hall and doors slamming and maybe there were shots being fired I don't know <laughs> there were some frictions between some of the people who were there with Aretha and some of the players so Aretha got out of town that morning. So when I got back to New York, I was terribly excited about it. I never loved a man. So my distributors heard about it and they said, okay, we're ready for a record. We didn't have a record because we had one side of a record. And uh, I couldn't find Aretha. Well, ultimately, I located her. And we finished this record, and to me it was just a fabulous piece of improvisation of finishing this record, put together with spit, chewing gum, and bailing wire.
My first big record there was I Never Loved a Man. That was my first million-selling record. I never loved a man the way I love you. We didn't make her a star. She was always a star. She'll forever be a star. We just got her into a popular acceptance level in one slot. Ladies and gentlemen, let us meet Miss Aretha Franklin. At Atlantic, Aretha made more than a commercial breakthrough. Aretha found her style, blending her gospel vocals and embedded piano playing with secular love songs. Aretha defined soul music as an expression of the 60s black pride movement and her own inner feelings. From 1967 into the mid-1970s, it was a rare Aretha recording that was not a soul classic. When Aretha came on the scene, as far as how I would rank her, I would certainly ha have to, to put, uh, put her among uh, the, the creators, you know, people who genuinely uh, create that, the sound that other people wish they could do. Aretha continued what Ray Charles started, which was the secularization of gospel music, of taking gospel melodies, gospel emotion, gospel rhythms, and putting the devil's words to them. One of the reasons for some of the hits at, at Atlantic was my gospel background being merged with the popular or R&B stylings. So I think that certainly, along with company promotion, et cetera, had something to do with the records being successful. I take great pleasure in presenting to you the Cashbox Achievement Award for 1967. You finished first in singles, first on albums, and first in rhythm and blues. Aretha also won all the awards available to a female vocalist in Record World magazine. Aretha was viewed as more than an entertainer. She stood as a potent symbol of black advancement. Her voice was one tangible example of black power. And in her own way, Aretha touched America as profoundly as any civil rights leader. You got young people now that could tell you more about Aretha than they could tell you about the civil rights movement. I can hear Aretha in the 60s. I'm not saying you can't hear her now, but then I could hear three or four times an hour. Well, I never heard King except on the news. Dr. King was a wonderful, wonderful, fine man as well as a civil rights leader. He and my dad were great friends. My dad brought him to Detroit and introduced him to the city of Detroit uh, through the New Bethel Baptist Church. If Martin needed money, he could make one phone call to, to Reverend Franklin, and that money was there. Also, that Reverend Franklin could de deliver his daughter over whatever record executives or managers would say, and I think that was uh, Aretha's uniqueness. Uh, you didn't go through an agent to get Aretha. You went through her daddy. He very definitely had an appreciation for gospel music. One of his favorite songs was Precious Lord, and he would always ask me to sing that for him. Precious! Because you're precious, Lord. 
And I know you'll reach out and take my, you'll take my pain. work she did with Martin Luther King. She devoted an enormous piece of her life to Martin Luther King, which meant giving of herself, yet she herself was not a sloganeer or a polemicist. This is acting out of the purest wellsprings of faith and belief. When you look at the whole time, the whole change that America uh, was going through, and Aretha came through with the new image. Uh, uh, Aretha had a new dignity. Every song that she did bespoke her condition at that time. Because if it didn't, she couldn't sing it. When Aretha was having emotional problems or personal problems, it might be difficult to get her to commit to the studio. And she might even, if let's say if she was living in Detroit, she might even come into New York and find it impossible to leave the hotel and come into the studio. We, when we started working with her, she. Uh, of course, Ted was there. And I always felt that he was pretty much jealous of anybody that would get close to her except for him and her immediate family members. I remember uh, when she went through breakups with him, uh, or the final breakup, I remember. She was highly depressed, and we'd, we'd come up to New York for the session, and maybe she wouldn't show for the session. Call Me is a perfect example, I think, of, uh, of some of the feelings she was having. I think she may have cried in this, in, during the lyric of that song, because she definitely had us crying. I think she sort of stands out for us, for me in particular, as a woman who has not always faced it that easy in order to get to the top, but who has uh, conquered as she, you know, soared to the heights and gave us the feeling that uh, you, she, you can do it too. 
you can overcome the obstacles that are out there before you. This is Amlock Red Square and you are now in tune to the entertainment trail. Sing, 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 sing. Yes, people, that was a beautiful remembrance of her, of her life. I know that not, that is not all of her story, but people, that is something that you could think about. All of her achievements. I understand, people. Aretha Franklin, she passed on Thursday in the morning in Detroit. She was battling with um, cancer for eight years or so I think they said about 2010 uh, she found out so people yes that's our show for this week I tell you do have a wonderful weekend and people always remember live good and good if good will follow you big up for yourself who can go to the uh, Marcus Cup celebration tomorrow at RFM please do so yes people Friday the 17th of August Jamaica National Year, Marcus Masayagaf, birthday, and that's all. So big up on yourself, people. See you next week. You want to continue to be free in your heart, mind, and soul. Big up. Together. Man